You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Hugo Mercier, who is at the Jean-Nico Institute in Paris, and who is the author of this book, Not Born Yesterday, The Science of Who We Trust and What We Believe, and also the co-author of this book, The Enigma of Reason. I have to say that your book changed my mind, or at least changed my perspective, and I'm sure you've heard the quote from Larry Summers that says, people are stupid, just look around. And I think you come to a very different conclusion. You say very clearly, you say people are not stupid. And so my world, where I teach courses on behavioral economics, behavioral finance, JDM, and so forth, we spend an awful lot of time talking about fallacies, cognitive errors, ways that people can, can go wrong. And I think when we do that, we kind of forget that these may well be the exceptions rather than the rule, and that people are actually fairly good at reasoning. People are, are fairly rational. And in this context with fake news and everything else, it's refreshing and somewhat surprising to be reminded of the fundamental rationality of people. Have you found your message to encounter any resistance? Have you found skeptics like myself tempted to dismiss you out of hand? Or have you been successful in in turning people around? To some extent, it depends on how willing people are to engage with the argument. I have encountered quite a few people like you who have said that they are very skeptical of the main claim that People are much less gullible and are much less easy to influence than we usually believe. And that after having read the book and looked at the sources, they mostly came to agree with me. But obviously, people who read the book and who thought I was completely wrong might be less likely to contact me and to tell me so. So there might be a bias there in the sampling. But clearly, there have also been quite a few people who, if I don't have time to explain at length and to give the evidence or people who might not be able or willing to evaluate the evidence who stick to their guns, which is, you know, in a way what I predict in the book that... If people are not able to engage with the arguments, if they don't trust the source, then they're going to stick to that position. So it's, in a way, it's it's fine by me if they stick to that guns in that case. I think in this book, you make a, it's actually an evolutionary claim, right? Which is that this mechanism, which we call reason, is something that has, has evolved and it's evolved for very specific reasons and it's involved to operate within a very specific environment. Could you talk a little bit about the context that led you to create this this book? The first book, then, The Enigma of Reason, which, as you mentioned, I, I wrote with, with Dan Sparber. In that book, the main claim that we make is that, as you are saying, the function of reason, so the, what would have been the evolutionary pressures that led reason to evolve, are social. In particular, uh, reason would have evolved so we can argue with each other and so we can justify our actions and our beliefs. And it's something we often take for granted, but if you couldn't exchange reasons with people, if you couldn't exchange arguments as soon as you disagree with someone, you'd be stuck, essentially. Either you'd have to defer just because, you know, they trust them more, or they, they would defer to you, or you'd be stuck. Whereas thanks to arguments, we are able to try to change each other's minds. And indeed, in small-scale conversation with a few people, people do change their minds quite often and quite well, and typically in, in the right direction. And so we, we believe that this is why reason evolved, to help, you know, grease the wheels of social interaction and not to help us come to better decisions or, or better beliefs on our own, you know, in like a Cartesian fashion where we're just you know, kind of sitting by their fireplace and, and try to consider the possibilities and weigh the pros and cons. And we think that by contrast, people are, are quite bad at this. 
But why do we lose sight of that? I mean, you talk about the intellectualist approach as opposed to the interactivist or argumentative approach. Is it because, at least in our academic lives today, we imagine ourselves to be these solitary geniuses sitting in, in a carol. I know for most of my education, I had a carol in the, in the library and I would, I would be spending my time thinking by myself. Well, I mean, I was obviously consuming lots of stuff, but it, there wasn't this constant back and forth in the marketplace that you might see in a Socratic world. Is it because of the way in which we've, as academics, come to do most of our work as solitary individuals? Is this why we have this view of the intellectualist approach? That's a good question. So I don't know how universal it is, really, this view that reason would mostly be used on their own. So not only do people tend to overestimate how good we are at reasoning on our own, they also tend to underestimate how good we are at reasoning with others. And they often think that argumentation is pointless and you never manage to change people's minds. And that is completely wrong. We know that from, from a lot of data now. So I'm not sure exactly why people get that wrong. In academia, there's indeed a large part of solitary reasoning, but there's also some constant social back and forth when you're submitting your paper and getting reviews, when you're getting feedback, when you're getting Mm -hmm. comments, when you're partaking in conferences, in lab meetings. So academia does work to a large extent, you know, is fueled by by these discussions. One of the effects of solitary reasoning that's well demonstrated is the kind of polarization and overconfidence. So people, once you have an idea in mind, if you think about it on your own a lot, one of the consequences is that you will tend to become even more sure that, that you're right. And if possible, you will develop kind of more extreme views. And in most cases, this is bad. But actually, in the kind of scientific or kind of intellectual domain, in some cases, it might be good. Because as intellectuals and scientists, we're faced with a very kind of bizarre, and very difficult task, which is to explore this huge kind of hypothesis space for which we have pretty bad intuitions about how the world works. And so each scientist has kind of their own intuitions and and most of these intuitions are going to be wrong, but some of them are going to be right. And it might be good for one of them to you know, push it to the extreme. And if you look at some, someone like Darwin, for a long time, he worked in complete isolation, but you know, he was kind of developing his ideas and, and he managed to, to develop this kind of this amazing framework, partly because he kept at it and he, and he was so sure he was right, he kept at it. And so in that case, it worked. But obviously, we don't see all the other people who did the same thing, but had bad ideas and just it didn't work out for them. As long as you have a process to sort out people who did get it right and those who get it wrong, it might be fine to focus on your ideas and to try to build them up as much as possible on your own for a little while before getting feedback. As long as there's some feedback at some point, it might still be okay. I found very compelling was this idea that the bias or you know the my side bias and the intellectual laziness that are seen as bugs, they may well be features if in fact knowledge is produced socially rather than in a solitary environment. We spend, at least in business schools, we spend an awful lot of time trying to de-bias our students and help them to get rid of all these, these cognitive errors. But it may well be a better investment to, rather than de-biasing all of the different individuals, construct a, a social environment where these different biased individuals can interact and somehow harness the wisdom of, of the crowd. Is that a better way to get advanced collective knowledge to design systems for optimal interaction rather than to try to convert everyone from a lawyer to a judge. I always tell people like, don't be a lawyer, you know, be a judge because lawyers are always, they start with the conclusion and work backwards. But you're saying it's okay. As long as that lawyer is, is encountering the right other lawyer, you know, and they have to come to some collective agreement that might actually lead to a better cognitive division of labor and lead to a better outcome. Yes, that's completely right. So to unwrap that a little bit, 
the idea that we're suggesting is that, so we know that reasoning has a my side bias, or what is often called confirmation bias. That is a tendency when you when you consider a conclusion or a belief that you have to overwhelmingly find reasons that will support that. And so if you start thinking, oh, you know, who am I going to vote for? You know, I'm sort of tending towards that person. And then you're mostly going to look for and find reasons that support voting for that individual. And that's the problem because, as we were saying earlier, that can lead, if you reason too much on your own, to becoming overconfident, you want to polarize because you think of all of these great reasons why you should vote for that person. And that's, as you were saying, that's the analogy of the lawyer who has a conclusion that they have to defend and they just you know, only find arguments for that conclusion. Unfortunately, when we're engaged in the, in the back and forth of the discussion, so we're both lawyers for our point of view. So we are both kind of arguing for our point of view. But what's amazing and what makes discussion so much better than that solitary reasoning is that we are actually able, when we evaluate the other person's arguments, to become the judge. Mm-hmm. And so there's quite a bit of data showing that when you are faced with a good argument, even an argument that challenges your views, you are able to recognize the strength of the argument. I think, you know, we've all had that experience of arguing with someone or reading in a book an argument that really kind of bothers us. Like the conclusion is really something that we find distasteful or that really challenges our prior views. And yet we can't help it, but find the, see the strength in the argument and that's why it, it bothers us. Like we know there's something that we have to, to deal with there. And so in a discussion, as long as you're in mostly good faith, which is kind of the case by default, you alternate taking the mantle of the lawyer when you're giving arguments and the judge when you're listening to the other person's arguments. And that is what makes an argumentation work. And to come back to the, the broader point about the context versus kind of influencing people on their own, we're not going to change the way people reason. This is just the way it is. Like it's essentially impossible to, to change deeply. The best you can do is try to emulate a solitary context in your own mind. And so, for instance, when you write an article, especially as you grow more experienced, you try to anticipate what the reviewers are going to say. So you try to simulate discussion in your mind, but it's hard because you, you never have as much knowledge as the reviewers. You never have the same motivation to find arguments to challenge your point of view. And so that's why the best thing to do is just to create an actual social context that will challenge you, given that it's so much easier, that people are really, really happy spontaneously to poke holes in your arguments, whereas it's something that it's really hard for you to do on your own. An analogy that I can take is if you want to diet... Like, we can't make people have a stronger willpower. Like, it just, it just doesn't work. But if you tell people, well, just don't buy any crap food, and then it's easier for them to diet because they don't have any temptation, any temptation at home. It's like, you know, if you, you're trying to really reason on your own and try to get very good at reasoning on your own, it's like trying to go on a diet in a house full of donuts. Like, it's just, it's just not going to work. Right. So there's two parts then. One part is when we evaluate our own arguments, and the other is when we're evaluating others' arguments. And if anything, we're, we're biased and lazy when it comes to evaluating our own arguments, but we're kind of demanding and more objective when it comes to evaluating others' arguments. Now, I think you mentioned a bunch of experiments where people are forced to evaluate their own arguments when they're in the mouths of others. They look at them somewhat differently. Is that right? Yes, we use this experimental paradigm that is really shocking and surprising, which is called choice blindness, which has been discovered by some Swedish psychologists it's so surprising that I really want to establish that this is a very kind of well-established by enough phenomenon by which it's very easy for people to be lied to in terms of what decisions they made. And so in the prototypical paradigm in that choice blindness, people have to decide between two pictures of someone from the other sex and to say which is the most attractive. And they say, well, you know, maybe, you know, they say, you know, it's me and a man. So it's say it's two women. And they say, well, I think that woman is more attractive. And then the two pictures are folded and the picture I've chosen is moved towards me and then it's raised and I have to say why I thought that woman was more attractive. Except that in a few of the tests, the pictures are swapped, kind of like a magic trick type fashion, 
And then the picture that is shown to me is the woman I have not chosen. This is the picture of the woman I thought was less attractive than the other one. And yet, not only do very, very, very few people, like practically nobody notices the change, but people are very able to justify why they picked a woman that they actually yes. didn't pick. And so we know that it's pretty easy to trick people about, I mean, especially this kind of trivial you know, decisions, it's not life-changing, but it's pretty easy to trick people about that. And so we, we use that paradigm, as you were describing, to try to get people to evaluate their own arguments as if they were someone else's. Because the, the prediction we make, it is that when it comes to your own arguments, as you are saying, we're quite lazy. Because, you know, if you give people a bad argument, worst case, they will be convinced, then you can give a better argument, you can use the counter-arguments that they give you. So it's fine to not give very good arguments on your own. By contrast, we should be quite good and quite critical and exigent when it comes to other people's arguments, because we don't want to accept a bad argument from someone else. And so the prediction that we made was that people should be much more critical. In a way, people should be relatively critical, but objective when it comes to other people's arguments, accepting good arguments and rejecting bad arguments. And then they should be quite lazy and lenient when it comes to their own arguments, but they should just accept anything as long as they thought of it themselves. And so in these experiments, participants were given kind of logical problems, and then they had to give an argument for, for their answer, and they did so. And then we asked them, now here is what someone else has said, and here is an argument that someone else has given for the same answer, and the argument challenged their point of view. Except that in some cases, we gave them back their own argument, the argument that they had written as if it were someone else's argument. And in more than half of the cases, people rejected the argument that they had written when they thought it was someone else's argument. And actually, they're more likely to do so when their own argument was bad than when it was good. And so in, in concrete terms, like if, you, if you wanted to be able to evaluate your arguments in a more objective fashion, the idea would be to be able to write something down and then kind of turn off the part of your brain that mm -hmm. recognizes the argument as your own, and then you'd be able to evaluate it more objectively. And in a way, I mean, that's what happens to us when you've written something like a few years ago and you read it again and it's, you know, it feels a bit foreign from you and you're like, oh, this mm -hmm. is actually not very good. <laughs> Sometimes you think the thing is good, but it's easier for us to find flaws in things we've written in a while. And so that's why when you're writing, it's good to wait a little bit and kind of revisit it because you gain some distance and it, it feels a little bit as if it were someone else's writing. The argument of this book is that, in fact, we're perhaps a little bit too skeptical when we're looking at arguments from others. If we're too lenient with our own, we might be too skeptical with others. But why would this make adaptive sense? I mean, presumably that the arguments are in the service of an agenda. And so we start with, with our interests and our agenda, and then the reasons are generally in the service of that agenda. And so that's why we're skeptical of other people's arguments, because we, we see them as like a potential smokescreen for an agenda which may be contrary to ours. In other words, we start with our preferences or our desires or our agenda, and then we go out and, and look for reasons that support that agenda. Is that the model? So that is true when it comes to your own reasons. So you, you start with a conclusion, and by default, we, we think we're right, but you know, our beliefs are right, our intuitions are correct. And so when someone disagrees with you, then you, you spontaneously find arguments that will support your point of view. However, sometimes we are actually wrong. And in these cases, it is good to be able to listen to other people's reasons. If they do indeed have good reasons, then to be able to change our minds. So we don't think that other people are more objective than we are. But the bias, we take that into account when discounting the conclusion. Let's say you're a salesperson and you say, well, you know, you should buy this thing that I'm selling. I'm going to discount what you're telling me because I know it's in your interest to sell me that. But if you start giving me arguments, even if I know the arguments are biased in a way, you're looking to bolster your own conclusion. If the arguments are good, I will still be able to recognize that and to change my mind. But when it comes to our own argument, I think you have some wonderful examples of how people are so 
their standards are so low when it comes to their own arguments. And, and it reminded me of some situations in my classes, you know, where I'm dealing with highly educated people, but their reasons at first approximation are just really, really bad. In my strategy class, I start with a case where the number of beer makers has declined dramatically over a 30-year period. And I, and I say, why do we see such a decline in, in the number of beer makers? And the first response is almost always, well, it's because we have more concentration in the beer market. <laughs> and, it's, and it's like, well, you've just re-described the question. You haven't answered it, but most people think that that's a sufficient explanation, right? Just to, to kind of rephrase the question. But they would probably not tolerate that if it was coming from someone else. Well, especially if other people gave that as an, as an argument for something that they disagreed with. Yes. If everybody agrees on the conclusion, then we, we are also lenient and lazy when evaluating other people's arguments because they don't require us to change our minds. So given that you know, in the example you described, given that we all agree on the phenomenon, then you know, people don't really see the point of arguing about it. It's like when you're, when you're in school and the teacher says, mm -hmm. well, this is the, the theorem. It's not, except for some people who are naturally interested in that, it's not really natural to be really interested mm -hmm. in the proof because you already accept the conclusion. So why bother with the arguments? So we're, we're mostly naturally interested in thoroughly evaluating and understanding arguments mm -hmm. when they might change our minds. And so that's where, you can, that's where things naturally comes. Yeah. Now, you mentioned groupthink a little bit, and then in the other book you talk a lot about polarization and the extent to which it exists. But you do acknowledge that people do enjoy being around people that agree with them perhaps more than they enjoy being around people that disagree with them. And so if you are seeking after the truth, it kind of requires effort to pursue those people who disagree with you to stress test your arguments, right? I mean, this is not a, yes. this is not always the natural thing for you to do. Is that because in our environment of evolutionary adaptation, we would generally find ourselves around people that disagreed with us, and so we didn't need to seek them out? Why don't we also have a, a natural instinct to seek out those that disagree with us? Is it because they're necessarily going to have an agenda? That's a great question. I think it's because in most cases, we rely on disagreements to occur spontaneously. So you're very right that we tend to, we have you know, this kind of tendency towards homophily and we, we tend to be around people who agree with us because otherwise we'd have to argue constantly, which is a bit of a pain. I love my wife and I agree with her on, on most things, but sometimes we do disagree and we do argue. So even the people who are, you know, the closest to you, your closest colleagues and everything, you will disagree with them in some things. And in a way that's oftentimes when discussion is the most productive, because if you take two people who disagree on everything, it becomes really hard to have a discussion because the kind of arguments you could use are not going to work on the other person because mm -hmm. they won't agree with the premises. So if you take like a Marxist and a you know, Nazi or whatever, you know, they might never be able to have a productive discussion. Or even if you take you know, people who come from very different you know, schools in anthropology or whatever, your intellectual schools, it might be really hard for them to argue because they disagree about most of the premises. And so it's good to agree on, on most things. So for instance, maybe your closest colleagues, you share a broad vision of, of the field but sometimes you disagree about you know, some, some details of an experiment or the interpretation of, of a result, and that's when the discussion is the most productive. And I think, on the whole, we, we, we find for, for this kind of different context in which people mostly agree with us and, and disagree on some points. But when the issue that's at stake is something that everybody around us agrees on, then it is good to try to, to seek out someone who tends to disagree, yeah. Now, I think a lot of people in psychology have made careers out of highlighting people's credulity. So we learn the very beginning of a psychology class, we learn about the Ash experiments and the, and the Milgram experiments and Bardo experiments, right? Those are kind of like the core of any kind of psychology class. But your argument is that 
this is just an example of social learning gone wrong, but social learning is critical. And that social learning, without social learning, we don't have humans. Well, okay, there's social learning in, in rats. You mentioned that if you're an omnivore, then social learning is necessary. And so koala bears don't need any social learning because they just eat the same stuff that their parents ate. So social learning is obviously a great thing. The immense value that humans derive from social learning and from being able to tell, you know, what to eat and you know what not to eat and how to hunt and how to do anything essentially from others is the main argument or the most cogent argument that people have used to defend the idea that we would be quite credulous. Well, given that we have so much to learn from others, it makes sense to kind of be relatively credulous and to and to accept what they tell us without looking too much into it because a lot of that knowledge that they transmit to us, even if it seems counterintuitive, might be useful in the end. The counter-argument to that is that that would work if everybody was super nice and only had people's best interests, you know, everybody's best interest in mind. And unfortunately, this is not how evolution works. And so if we started being too credulous, then others would take advantage of us by transmitting us, you know, beliefs and practices that would be good for them and not for us. In some cases, we see that, but we see it much, much less than we would if we were really credulous. And so I think that these experiments that you mentioned have been widely misinterpreted. The Ash experiments in particular is quite annoying because Ash himself really saw these experiments to some extent as showing how people can resist the pull of the majority. Even in the majority of the cases, people actually did not go along with the group. Even maybe more relevantly, people didn't really agree with the group. They just said they agreed because they didn't want to have any kind of social stigma from disagreeing with everybody. But in their private answers, people all obviously gave the what was the right answer, what their eyes were showing them. And so social learning is crucial, but it can only work and it can only be evolutionarily stable if people are careful what to accept. And then they can, if they have good reasons to accept something, if it comes from a trustworthy source, if they have good arguments, then they will accept it. Your discussion of persuasion, I, I tend to look at it through like a classifier lens where we're trying to classify arguments into ones that should persuade us and ones that shouldn't persuade us. And we're going to have true positives and true negatives, false positives and false negatives. And in business school, we spend a lot of time teaching people how to persuade, perhaps not as much time teaching people how to be persuaded. We sometimes teach them how not to be persuaded, but we don't talk about when to be persuaded. And so if it's really a, a classifier, then our, our goal should not be accuracy. We have some loss function. And that loss function is if you're persuaded of a bad argument, that's going to have a different cost than not being persuaded of a good argument. And so we need to understand what the base rates are. So if the base rate is like everybody out there is trying to dupe you, then you should probably have a different sensitivity level than if people out there are not trying to dupe you. And so I guess your argument is that although we might do a fairly good job, you know, there may be some cases where we have the wrong sensitivity level. The sensitivity level is designed to operate differently in different contexts. Yes. So the classifier you're describing, I would mostly see it as applying to conclusions in a way, maybe more than, than to arguments. So, you know, you, you want to tell me something and either I accept it or I reject it. And sometimes I reject things that I should have accepted. Sometimes I accept things I should have rejected. And on the whole, when it comes to beliefs, I think we tend to be skewed towards rejecting too many things rather than accepting too many things. And in a way, if you're in a kind of interactive social context, talking with people, it makes sense because if I accept something that I shouldn't have accepted, then I, I lose and I just have a bad belief. It could be harmful. It could be costly. So there's a clear cost there. By contrast, if I reject something that I should have accepted, 
then the person, the individual I'm talking to can try again. They can give me another mm -hmm. argument. They can try to convince me some other way. And so I'm less likely to pay a cost then because, you know, uh, the person I can give some feedback. Usually in, in conversation, we're always telling people, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Or like when someone disagrees with you, you, you see it usually. And as long as we don't hide our disagreement, then that gives the other person an opportunity to change our minds again. It's less of a big deal usually to reject something we should have accepted because the other person can try again to convince us. The only case when it becomes really problematic is when you don't have that feedback. So when you're watching TV or reading the newspaper or reading a book and you read an argument and it doesn't convince you, well, in real life, you would have said, ah, oh, no, I don't think so. And the person might have given you another argument. They might have given you an argument that really speaks to your point of view. But if you're not talking to anybody, you just stay back and stay stuck to your point of view. And so something that naturally occurs in a discussion, given that this back and forth is broken down when you're interacting with a newspaper, you have to make more of an effort to really make sure that you understood the argument because there's no one else to kind of reformulate it for you. So really, if you don't, if you're not persuaded, and if you think the source is someone you respect on the whole, then it's worth really trying to make sense to be as charitable as possible and to really spend a lot of time making sense of their arguments. Well, I think Plato made that point, right? I forget which dialogue it was where he said, if you're publishing something, if you're pushing some written word out into the environment and you don't really know who your audience is, then you can't craft your argument to suit their priors. And so, you know, you have to write a whole lot more to try and capture all the objections, but then that requires an awful lot of attention on the part of the reader. And I think in today's world where we're bombarded with Twitter and Instagram and so forth. There's no opportunity for any, any back and forth. I find that if I send an email to someone, I either have to write an email that's like 50 pages long to account for all the different possible objections, in which case no one reads it, or I'm mm -hmm. misunderstood in, in the little brief one. And so there's zero persuasion that ever happens via email. It's been my experience. Yes, conversation is, is vastly more efficient because it really builds in this back and forth. And I know if you disagree with me or not, if you disagree, typically you will tell me why, and I can really give you the specific counter-argument that will convince you. So that's why actually with some colleagues, we've been working on, on chatbots, which is a very kind of basic technology, but in a way they are able to emulate conversation in a way that is then again much less good than an actual human, but, but it's better than just a wall of text. Because as you were saying, and as Plato was, was saying, if you want to convince everybody, you need to account for every possible counter-argument. And so... The issue is that then most of these counter-arguments are going to be irrelevant for most people. And so it just becomes like you know, too much. It really dilutes the relevance of the main point. Whereas if you can have, when we in our chatbots, so people say, you know, well, I disagree with you for that reason. And then we give them the counter-argument. And then if they still disagree with us, they can say, well, I still disagree for that reason. And then we give them the counter-argument for that. So obviously it's not infinitely flexible. And it's, we can't tailor the, you know, the level of discourse with the audience. So it's, you know, it's much less good than an actual conversation, but it is better than having just all of the arguments at once. You have a discussion about kind of animal signals, which is another area that I'm, I'm very interested in. You mentioned that our truth detection module is you know, the arguments that we have the ability to determine whether somebody's telling the truth by looking at their micro gestures, kind of the Paul Ekman story, that you find this whole literature to be unconvincing because when it comes to costly signaling, you evolve both the capability of signaling and also the capability of, of detection. And so there has to be some costly signal involved when it comes to communicating veracity. Could you repeat that discussion? Because you see this, I mean, there's so much work. The U.S. government invested billions of dollars in micro gesture detection at the airports, and then finally they just abandoned the whole thing. Yeah, it doesn't work. So there is a very long tradition and everybody, I think in just about every historical period, all the time, 
people think they can tell who is lying from their demeanor. They can tell, you know, whether they're looking at you in the eye, whether they're fidgeting, they're sweating, they're, you know, whatever, they're tapping their foot. And there has been now you know, literally you know, hundreds and hundreds of papers showing that is not true. There's just no reliable cue. Like the best, the most reliable behavioral cues would be like, at, you know, 55% chances of getting it right. I mean, it's just nothing works. And so microexpression was, was something that Paul Ekman indeed and his colleagues had suggested, which was the idea that let's say, you know, I'm very happy, but I want to pretend that I'm sad. The smile, the, the muscles responsible for smiling will, will activate very, very, very fast because I can't suppress them constantly to try to appear sad. And if you've taken this course, then you're able to detect these things and to detect what people's true emotions are. And the same, you know, for lying, you detect your guilt and whatnot. And so that doesn't work. So that's not my research. I haven't done any research on, on that myself, but that's the consensus of the, of the literature that's very well established. And Eggman didn't publish really any finding on that himself. Like he just sold that to a lot of companies and governments, but he didn't publish anything. So that's the way the literature rests. And what I try to explain is why that is what we should have expected. And if you think about it in evolutionary terms, there is no reason for people to evolve in such a way that they would send signals saying, telling others that they're lying. It makes no sense. Now, why would you do that? Let's say there was some behavior that was associated with lying for some reason. There is no reason that evolution would not break down that association. Let's say for some random reason, when you're lying, you're more likely to fidget or whatever then people who lie and fidget are going to be selected against and people who lie without fidgeting will be selected for and they will win out. And so that should have been the prediction that is just not going to work and indeed it doesn't work. Robert Trivers, his argument is that the way in which we get around that is we just convince ourselves of the lies. <laughs> and so that would get rid of the markers of, of lying if they were detectable. So you just evolve a mechanism that would counterbalance that tendency. An even simpler solution is just not to have any tails in the first place. But that means that if we want to be believed, then our, our signals have to be credible, and this has to be something which is more costly for the liars to do than for the truth-tellers. And we're all familiar with the bowerbird story about how the, the bowerbirds will build these beautiful nests as a way of credibly signaling that they are these fantastic, wonderful... <laughs> skilled craftsmen and good homemakers and so forth. But I think the less well-understood part is that the reason why it's credible is because if, if they're lying, the other birds will rip their nests apart. I think there's a similar story about these birds. If they have a, a fake testosterone patch on their chest, then the other birds will peck them to death. If you were to remove the police birds from the environment, then presumably they, they would get away with, with their deception. So the barbers that build very large structures, they decorate you know, kind of very beautiful fashion, sometimes usually kind of uniformly colored, like blue or pink or whatever. They find items everywhere, flowers and things in the forest, and they decorate. It's really quite, quite beautiful. And obviously, it's the males that do that before mating season to attract females. And it was thought that the effort spent into doing this, essentially the whole time, they spent a lot of time doing this. The idea would be that if you can afford to do all this while being able to find enough food to survive, then it means that you're a very, very fit, very strong, very competent power bird. And so a straightforward prediction of that, of that account is that if you artificially increase the beauty of some powers, then the power birds whose power they are will, they will attract females better. And that's what an ornithologist tried to do. And he found that that wasn't working at all. And as you were describing, it was because the other power birds were taking apart the nests of the power birds who had mm -hmm. nests that were better than they were supposed to be. So the beauty of the nest was really a credible signal of their ability to defend their nest, right? So it's like if you walk around a bad neighborhood with jewelry and a nice pair of sneakers, 
really signaling is not just that you have the ability to buy this stuff, but you also have the ability to defend yourself against anybody who's trying to take it away from you. Yes, and that's the most important thing in the way. So what are some of the other signals that people will invest in in order to gain credibility in a small-scale environment? Because I think part of this is that some of those mechanisms could break down in in a different environment. Mm -hmm. When you're describing how reputation matters, and if you're caught lying, then it can really damage your reputation. And yet I see in large organizations, like ones that I've been involved in, there are people that are just pathological liars and no one seems to care. So how does the reputation mechanism operate and what are some of the conditions which can cause it to break down? The main mechanism as we're saying, through which human communication remains mostly honest and reliable is reputation. So if you tell me something, it's very hard for me to evaluate what you're telling me based on your demeanor. I mean, I can use the, the plausibility of what you're telling me. If you tell me that you have a pink elephant in your room, I, I, I won't believe you. As long as you remain within the things that are plausible, and if I know you, if we have a relationship, and, and I have reasons to believe that you want to protect the good reputation, then I know you have incentives not to lie to me because if you do lie to me or if you tell me something that turns out to be costly for me, it is very likely that I will find out afterwards because I will act on your, your lies and I will, I will do something bad or stupid. And then I will hold you responsible and I will hold you accountable and the trust I have in you will plummet. And we know that trust is pretty hard and can be very slow to gain, but it can fall very, very quickly. And we all know that if you have a good friend or partner who does something that really can jeopardize the trust and you know, years of good relationship can be canceled pretty quickly. And people are good at this, even small children, like we all do this. So I don't have a good insight necessarily into why kind of pathological liars are, are able to get away with it. But my first impression would be that they don't need to be believed, they need to be obeyed in most cases. Mm-hmm. And so they don't necessarily need the people who work under them to believe in what they're telling them. They just need to be in a position of authority. And then whether the people under them believe that what they're being told is a good idea or not, they just have to do it. You don't need a good reputation anymore, in a way, unfortunately. You just need to be in a position of status that will allow you to force other people to do what you like. Yeah, so in, in the book you discuss, Not Born Yesterday, you're very skeptical of the idea that demagogues can easily succeed through deception. And of course, I think for someone like myself, you read about Mao and you read about Hitler and you read about Stalin. And, and if you read Darkness at Noon, you think, well, there are all these people who have just drunk the potion hook, line, and sinker and have bought into all this. And I think you're, you're more skeptical of this. I mean, we saw this with the collapse of, of the Eastern Bloc, right? Where in Germany prior to 1989, everyone thought that everyone in East Germany supported the government. And then a week later, we realized that nobody supported them, right? So is that more generally the case? Do you think people are just sort of yes. not telling the truth when they're surveyed? First of all, we see in, in these countries don't have surveys. In North Korea, they don't do a lot of polling. <laughs> <laughs> they don't do a lot of polling, no, no. But the leaders in these countries are terribly worried about what the people think of them. And Hitler and Stalin, they all had services you know, mm-hmm. devoted to try to figure out what public opinion was, which is very difficult. It's, it's been described mm-hmm. as the kind of dictator's dilemma, is that you want people to only say good things about you, but you also want to know what they really think. <laughs> so it's really hard to get both. Why bother with all the propaganda machinery then? So there are, there are several reasons why it can work. So the results that I, I rely on from historians and economists, both kind of qualitative and quantitative research, suggest that propaganda has very limited effects, limited direct effects. So it doesn't convince people of the message it is intended to persuade them of. But it can have other effects. For instance, it can show how strong the regime is. And that works because, as you are saying, it's an honest signal, like only a regime that is indeed very strong and holds all the, all the rates of power 
can indeed control the media or the radio, the movies, the newspapers. You can't fake that. So if, if you see, you know, World War propaganda on all the media, you know that you better not mess with the regime because they are controlling everything. It also obviously stops contradictory views from spreading, which is good for the dictators. It makes it harder for people to, to not agree, apparently, with the regime, which creates these situations you are describing and that Timur Kuran has called cases of pluralistic ignorance. Mm-hmm. So essentially, everybody hates the regime, but people also think that other people like the regime because outwardly, people, they seem to like the regime. They go to demonstrations, they put signs saying, oh, I love whatever dictator, but they all realize that this is crap and that life is crap and the guy is an asshole. But they don't realize that other people also realize that. And that makes it much harder to create collective action. But then that means you can have these information cascades that happen, right? Where you can go very quickly. Once you you see that the power is not as complete as you thought it was, then everyone can flip. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, presumably, in East Germany, when I think the East German government reacted in a way that was perceived as overly weak when some people defected. And then people realized, well, actually, they don't bother really persecuting us anymore. And then there's just this, yeah, it was, it was finished in a matter of days. We saw that in Romania. If you'd gone to Romania near one year before Ceausescu was dethroned, you would have thought, well, everybody loves him. And then, you know, they hunted him like a dog and killed him. And so, yeah, things aren't where they seem. More broadly, you have some authoritarian regime that don't do a lot of propaganda, but all authoritarian regime have a lot of repression, obviously. And so that tells you which of the two is the one that really does the job. Right. This relates also to branding, right? So companies invest an awful lot in in their brand. The game theorists would argue that this is non-informational signaling. What it signals is that that they should be trusted, essentially, because Mm -hmm. the harm that would result from any kind of breach of trust is, is so large. It's a costly signal to build up this brand. There's no information contained in the advertising. It's just like, Coke adds life, drink Coke. And then everybody trusts that Coke must be good because they've got this powerful brand. Yeah, so that's one way in which branding could work. Given that the literature on, on like TV ads suggests that the effects are pretty small, I would think that the main reason for branding is that, and not for advertising about branding, but just for making sure that people know the name of the products that you sell, is that if you think you're selling good products, then if people know their name, the next time they see a product with the same name, they will be more likely to buy it. And even in a way, the very fact that you're putting your name out there on a product suggests that you're more confident in the quality of the product because, you know, if you make something really crap, presumably you don't want people to know who made it. It does work. I mean, obviously, brand loyalty is quite real, even though it's quite fragile for most people, except the most kind of hardcore fans. If whatever brand puts out a bad product, people are pretty liable to just go to someone else. So what makes it work is putting out good products in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then the branding is just people being able to connect the different products to a given brand and to know that the next time before the products have been good in the past, then they will keep being good. The same goes for politicians, which is one of the reasons, I guess, why name recognition matters so much in politics, is that if people don't even know who you are, you could do whatever, essentially, and it wouldn't even trust. So why would they they trust you? So when you're trying to evaluate trust or we're trying to build trust, right, there are certain strategies that work. One thing you talk about is is the use of these kind of modifiers, epistemic modals, where you... Mm -hmm calibrate your confidence in such a way that allows you an out, perhaps if you're wrong, mm-hmm. right? If you're discovered to be wrong, then you can, this sort of stuff that happens in everyday language. All the time, yeah. There's something that even strikingly three, four-year-olds will say, and it's quite fascinating because they could just say the ball is in the box, but if they're not quite sure, they might say, you know, I think the ball is in the box. And so whether they do that, the only advantage that this has is that if the ball turns out not to be in the box, I mean, if it's a three-year-old, you don't really care, but you blame them less or you lower the reputation less than if they were more sure of themselves. And so indeed, we're constantly adjusting 
We use models, we use the tone that we have, we use all sorts of verbal and verbal cues to modulate the confidence that we have in our assertions so that people don't blame us too much if they turn out to be wrong. So you have a little discussion about fallacies. When I teach critical thinking, I go through all the fallacies, right? and there's hundreds of them. But you point out that every one of these fallacies has a corresponding flip side. So, for instance, ad hominem arguments, right? I mean, ad hominem arguments, we love to trash them. But in fact, most of our beliefs are, are essentially built on ad hominem arguments. Hey, there's a scientist at this university, so I'm, I'm more inclined to believe what they've said. I mean, why would we believe that the world is made of atoms and yeah. <laughs> the world is round and goes around the sun? I mean, a lot of this stuff is not intuitive. And you talk about the difference between sort of intuitive beliefs and, and reflective beliefs. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, as you are saying, when you learn the fallacies, like the example of an argument from authority, people say, oh, you know, this is an argument from authority and it's bad. Well, well, no, I mean, because obviously without arguments from authorities, you know, we wouldn't know anything. So we know anything scientific, for instance. So the question is, you know, is the authority an expert in the right domain? Are they, is there any reason to believe that they are, they've been brought out or anything? And absent that, you know, arguments from authority are, are perfectly valid. And we're very good intuitively at recognizing good arguments from authorities from, from bad arguments from authorities. I saw it on Facebook as probably not a good argument. <laughs> yeah, I saw it on Facebook as probably not a good argument. No, no, no. But I, I don't think many people would use it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm, I'm being too optimistic. But the argument I saw it on Facebook to argue for some scientific assertion, I don't think many people will use it, but maybe I'm wrong. That's where I think people are pretty bad at making arguments at first. So they may just remember they've seen it on Facebook and then they say, well, oh, I've seen it on Facebook. No one would be convinced. But then if they're a person more, they would say, oh, I saw it on Facebook, but you know, it was a New York Times on Facebook. So maybe that would be how it would work out. As to your other question about intuitive and reflective beliefs, so that's another concept that was developed by Dan Spaber. The idea is that humans are able to entertain beliefs in such a way that they can really kind of genuinely hold a belief and yet not do anything about it, not act on the basis of that belief. The root of, of that capacity rests with our ability to hold false beliefs. So we know in order to understand each other and communicate, it is crucial that we are able to hold beliefs without believing them ourselves. So for instance, when you talk to someone and you disagree with them, you have to be able to know what they're thinking without believing it. So you say, Greg thinks that, but I think that's wrong. And so that's well studied, and we know that small children can do that, and it's completely crucial for, for human interaction. But what's more surprising is that we can have beliefs that we actually believe, and we cannot treat as if they are false. They remain isolated from our cognition. So you know, if I think you think X and X is wrong, I'm not going to do anything on the basis of X. Like, let's say if you think it's going to rain and I think the weather is going to be nice, I'm not going to take an umbrella. Mm-hmm. But what's a bit kind of bizarre and less intuitive is that we can do the same thing about beliefs that we actually believe in. So, for instance, I believe in, in quantum physics and in relativity mm-hmm. theory, and yet nothing follows from that. Like, it doesn't impact my behavior in the slightest if I hold these beliefs. So, one of the implications is that there are a lot of people that believe in all these conspiracy theories, but when the rubber hits the road, they don't really... They don't act as if they believe them because it's just not something that's relevant for their everyday life. And if it was, then they would maybe examine them a little more closely. Yes, totally. And the contrast is something that I thought about after after writing the book, unfortunately. But a nice way of putting that contrast is if you look at what happens when people have been confronted with genuine clues that a conspiracy is going on. So people who work within an organization or the government or a company, and they realize that their employers are, you know, embezzling money or you know, engaging in some kind of criminal activity or something really bad is going on. And these people are typically, they're afraid, they don't want to talk. You have these whole kind of programs to try to motivate whistleblowers so that these people talk. They're afraid for their jobs. They can be afraid for more than jobs in some cases. And so in a way, if you intuitively believe that there is a conspiracy going on in your organization, 
you tend to be very cautious progressively. You know, you're going to ask other people, you're going to be very quiet about it. And that's the exact opposite of what you see in people who believe in, you know, 9-11 conspiracy theories. And, and these people are very vocal and they say, you know, oh, the government is so powerful that they organized 9-11, but apparently they can't silence a blogger who's telling all this. It makes no sense. If these people intuitively believe that the government was that evil and that powerful, they should be hidden away in caves and basements and not telling anybody about what they're thinking because they would be dead very soon. Yeah, you talk about the mind candy and, and how it's, it's really kind of a form of entertainment. You're a little bit more optimistic than I am. Maybe you got to live in, in America to feel that way. But how does a reflective belief that is non-intuitive become an intuitive belief? And I'm thinking about the germ theory of disease, right? So 150 years ago, this was something which is very abstract, but there are these invisible particles that get transmitted from organism to organism, right? It doesn't really make any sense. But now it's so intuitive that we have to argue with people, oh, no, listen, like you shouldn't clean yourself with soap all the time. And, and that seems very counterintuitive, right? So how do these beliefs then become intuitive? So that's a great question. So there are several ways in which it can happen. But the main one is through education, in particular, in a repetition of something. So if you think of mathematics, we forget about it because we learned that when we're so small, but counting is not an intuitive thing. Like if you don't learn how to count, you're not going to know how to count. Like after two, three, four, you know, maybe there are quite a few human languages that don't have numbers. And so at first, you know, these concepts are mm -hmm. reflective and it's hard. You think, what is three against three? So it's two plus one, just it's hard. And then obviously, as you learn to count and you use the numbers all the time, it becomes so intuitive that it's impossible for you, you know, to see a quantity and to just kind of think of the number. So, you know, practice really, really does the trick, but it can only do the trick in some way if it can tap into some mechanisms that are already there. And so in the case of the, of the germ theory of disease, we have these kind of disgust mechanisms that evolve to protect us from contamination. And then we can tap into saying, well, you do have these little things that will make you sick. And the problem is that these mechanisms, they, they don't always give you the answers that fit with medicine. Like there are some things that we know, for instance, are not going to make you sick. There are other things that are not really intuitive and that will make you sick. And so that's why it's often hard. There are some policies that are really hard to implement when they kind of don't mesh with our intuitions. And other policies that are much easier to implement if you're like hand washing, it's like, okay, especially if you touch something intuitively disgusting like feces and whatnot, it's pretty easy to get people to wash their hands. But other things like wearing masks, if you don't have any symptom, well, intuitively, it's like, you know, why would I do that? Even though this is what works. You have a wonderful discussion of Jacques Lacan in the book, and it's sort of in a whole section on gurus and, and our propensity to maybe listen to gurus. So after talking about how our systems are so well calibrated, when I was reading through the book a couple times, I was like, well, this is very Panglossian, that we're perfectly well adapted. But of course, you do talk about how these systems get hijacked and how we live in an environment that's very different from the environment in which our reasoning evolved. So what are the key aspects of our modern communication environment that make this adaptive system suboptimal? And what kinds of things can we do to try to better align our, our mechanisms for reasoning with the environment that we find ourselves in? So on the whole, there's a lot of these adaptive lags. As you were saying, you know, the environment, the cultural environment has evolved so quickly that our evolved cognitive mechanisms haven't kept up at all. And people tend to be worried about that in the sense that they think that because of these adaptive lags, we will tend to accept a lot of things that are false. We will fall prey to misinformation very easily. We will become very gullible. And I don't think that's the case at all. By contrast, where it is problematic is that it does lead us to reject a lot of, of things that are good. As you were saying earlier, in terms of these, these models, the problem is mostly where we reject a lot of information that is correct. So essentially, when you read the newspaper, most of what's in the newspaper is approximately correct. 
is probably better than your priors anyway. When you think of anything for which there is a scientific consensus, it's going to be better than your priors essentially all of the time. And yet, not everybody immediately accepts what the newspaper or the scientific consensus is. And that's the big problem. And so what we have to train ourselves is not to get better at rejecting information, because we're already very good at this. We have to get better at accepting more information and understanding why journalism and science and some of these amazing institutions that we have are, in most cases, very reliable. We don't want to just accept everything, but understanding how these institutions work and what makes them reliable, in what cases they will be more or less reliable, and just putting yourself in a position that we can accept more, that we can trust more people and more of these amazing institutions that we have. That's a very optimistic message. And I love the fact that we have more people weighing on the half full side <laughs> to counterbalance the half empty side. These are definitely arguments worth listening to. I think in order to really appreciate the argument of both books, people do need to sit down and, and, and read them. The examples are fantastic and the argument is very well nuanced. So I appreciate you, Hugo, for joining me today. Check it out. Not Born Yesterday. I barely scratched the surface discussing the book. There's so much in there on polarization, on tribalism, on Facebook, on social media. There's lots of really interesting material in there. So hopefully everybody will check the book out. And also this one, this is really, I think, a very, very transformative book that you co-authored with Dan. So thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. It was fantastic. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Dot com.